0: This is The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. Presented by Legacy Precious Metals. A man who's gone through hell, but he's kept going and he's smart and he's strong and people love him. Not everybody, but people love him and respect him. Roger Stone. Now, here's Roger Stone.
1: This is a Roger Stone and this is the Roger Stone show here at 77 W.A.B.C. 77 W.A.B.C. is the crown jewel of A.M. Radio. It's where we work very hard to make A.M. Radio great again. Thanks for joining us on this beautiful Sunday afternoon with a Judge ordering the release of documents regarding sex trafficker and pedophile Jeffrey Epstein this week, we've also seen a a vicious attempt, an assault in fact, on President Donald Trump, distorting the facts about Trump's connection to Jeffrey Epstein in order to distract from the disgraced millionaire's very real connection to Bill and Hillary Clinton. If anything these new revelations, when you examine them, well, they actually exonerate Donald Trump. Bill and Hillary Clinton are the penicillin-resistant syphilis of the American body politic. Online, I noticed that Trump haters are exhuming a phony line of attack, misstating the history between Donald Trump and Jeffrey Epstein. It should be no surprise that this narrative which was previously used by Hillary Clinton uh, and her flunkies to distract from the Clinton's extensive financial and beneficial relationship with the rapist and sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein, is being recycled yet again. Now, that Donald Trump knew uh, and was at social gatherings with Jeffrey Epstein is entirely accurate. Since 2021, it has been publicly known that Trump was on Epstein's plane once and only once, uh, and he was on the plane with his then-wife, Marla Maples, and their daughter, Tiffany. Uh, They flew from New York to Palm Beach and from Palm Beach back to New York at a time that Donald Trump's plane was out of service. Now, I reviewed all of the FAA records on Epstein's plane when I wrote my book, The Clinton's War on Women. That was back in 2015. In fact, I was the probably the second major public figure to expose Jeffrey Epstein. Chapter 7 of that book, entitled Orgy Island, is the longest chapter in the book. Uh, You can get that book, by the way, by going to EpsteinTruthBook.com, EpsteinTruthBook.com. It's entitled The Clintons' War on Women. Uh, But uh, the entire Epstein story is a twisted one that many people don't know a lot about. Palm Beach City Police Chief Michael Ryder insisted that he gave the elected state's attorney from Palm Beach County enough evidence from a six-month undercover investigation to charge Epstein with 35 incidences of child sex trafficking, as well as multiple counts of rape of a minor. Chief Ryder was subsequently shocked when the state's attorney filed a sweetheart plea deal that Jeffrey Epstein's high priced lawyers, including Roy Black, Gerald Lefcourt, Alan Dershowitz, uh, and the late former U.S. Solicitor General Ken Starr, had negotiated. The state's attorney who gave Epstein this slap on the wrist immediately then resigned and formed a private law firm which began almost immediately providing expensive legal services to several. Of Epstein's accomplices now the truth is Trump broke with Epstein prior to Epstein being prosecuted in Florida Epstein should have gone down for sex trafficking and instead Epstein was allowed to plead to one count of solicitation this is a shocking plea deal that required him to serve his 18-month sentence of which I believe he only actually served 13 months, in the air-conditioned Palm Beach County Jail. And he only had to stay in jail from 10 p.m. until 6 a.m. each day. Otherwise, he was free to go wherever he wanted and would often return to his Palm Beach mansion during the day. Uh, Inside the jail... He had his gourmet meals brought in on a daily basis. Now, under Florida law, when convicted of any sex crime, you are sent to a state penitentiary, which I can guarantee you in Florida is no day at the beach. So why was Jeffrey Epstein allowed to serve his sweetheart sentence uh, in the air-conditioned Palm Beach County Jail? In fact, we now know that the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office operated more like Jeffrey Epstein's personal security detail as they transported him around during his daytime business activities or on his leisure time at his Palm Beach mansion. I've actually seen a video of Palm Beach County deputies driving Epstein to a tennis court for his daily match. Now, when the Palm Beach County police chief, Ryder, was shocked by this, he took his concerns about the soft deal that the state's attorney seems to have given Epstein to U.S. Attorney Alex Acosta in Miami. Acosta then launched his own investigation, but ultimately rubber-stamped the state's plea deal and then sealed the whole thing. Had that seal remained in place, we would know nothing about Jeffrey Epstein today. After many years of litigation by the Palm Beach Post, ultimately, we obtained the first tranche of documents that proved that the Bush Justice Department instructed Acosta to give Epstein a pass. In fact, in his preparation for confirmation hearings in the U.S. Senate, When Acosta was appointed Secretary of Labor by President Donald Trump, Acosta told U.S. Senate staffers that if he was asked about the disposition of the Epstein case while he was U.S. attorney, he would simply say the truth, which was that the Department of Justice told him that Epstein worked for the CIA and the matter needed to be closed and the file legally sealed Now, after his serving his state sentence, Epstein essentially returned to the management of his blackmail and sex trafficking operations. But for the dogged reporting of a reporter named Julie Brown of the Miami Herald, whose exposure of the facts about Epstein ultimately caused his subsequent indictment and his questionable suicide, Jeffrey Epstein would not be in the press today as he is. Actually, Stephen Hoffenberg, uh, who was uh, incarcerated after conviction uh, in a, uh, uh, a credit lending scam, but who had trained the young Epstein, began calling me in 2015, insisting that Epstein was running a sex trafficking rig and that he would be arrested by the FBI. Hoffenberg called me so many times with this hip tip that I actually had to block him on my phone. Mr. Hoffenberg has gone on to his reward, but he turns out to have been absolutely right. Now, Virginia Jeffrey, who is now married and is therefore Virginia Jeffrey Roberts, is among the victims who sued Epstein for his sexual abuse. 33 women, who were previously children when assaulted, settled for millions of dollars. But Giffray refused to sign a, a confidentiality agreement, refused to settle, and brought legal action against Epstein. It is in her lawsuit with Ghislaine Maxwell, who was Epstein's pimp, that we have these new revelations ordered by the court only days ago. But in her lawsuit deposition, she said she met billionaire Donald Trump once at Epstein's Palm Beach mansion and that Trump was a complete gentleman and she never saw him acting inappropriately in any way. Through her attorney at the time, Bradley Edwards, uh, she said that Trump was the only significant public figure within Epstein's orbit who was actually helpful to her attorneys in their litigation. Brad Edwards, Geoffrey's attorney, had this to say about Donald Trump. He, meaning Donald Trump, is the only person who in 2009, when I served a lot of subpoenas on a lot of people, to some very well-connected people and wanted to talk to them, it was Trump who was the only person who picked up the phone and said, let's just talk. I'll give you as much time as you want. Uh, And he actually did. According to Edwards, he was very helpful in the information that he gave, and he gave no information whatsoever that would indicate that he himself was involved in anything untoward or improper. But he did have good information, and everything he told us checked out. That helped us a lot, said Edwards, uh, and it didn't even need to take a deposition from him. Bradley Edwards, the lawyer, would subsequently sue, be sued by Epstein for defamation, a lawsuit that Edwards would win. Now, I know personally that Donald Trump turned down numerous invitations to Epstein's hedonistic private island, dubbed as Orgy Island by my friend Sean Hannity, as well as Epstein's palatial Palm Beach home. There is no evidence that Trump did anything improper. In fact, I specifically remember Norma Federer, Trump's longtime personal assistant, telling me that Trump thought Epstein was a creep. Actually, Trump told one member of his club, the one time I visited his Palm Beach home, the swimming pool was full of beautiful young girls. How nice, I said to my bodyguard. He lets the neighborhood kids use his pool. According to Trump's bodyguard, who I interviewed for my 2015 book, Trump left Epstein's home in Palm Beach within 15 minutes of arrival, feeling uncomfortable with the strange ratio of men to much younger women. Should also be stressed that Donald Trump never visited Epstein's island, never visited his New York home, the most expensive piece of residential real estate in all of Manhattan, never visited Epstein uh, in Paris. Uh, And in fact, uh, many of these Epstein-based smears against Trump are now once again being recycled, uh, but they originated with the Clinton campaign. You see, I was able to prove that it was Jeffrey Epstein who provided millions of dollars in seed funding for the Clinton Global Initiative. Back then, it was called the Clinton Foundation. And when you pull the paperwork, you will find that Jeffrey Epstein was one of the original incorporators. We now know, I knew and published as early as 2015, but reiterated this most recent week, that Bill Clinton visited Epstein's island on at least 17 occasions uh, and was identified by FAA records as having been on Epstein's plane on at least 26 occasions. So Epstein funded the Clinton Foundation, and then the Clinton Foundation provided 100% of the funding for Terra Mar. That's a nonprofit controlled by Epstein pimp, Ghislaine Maxwell. That was utilized to hire young female interns to allegedly work on environmental projects, but which actually constituted a grooming pool of young women who became Epstein's future victims. Now, unlike the Clintons, Donald Trump cut Epstein off in 1999 after he heard about an inappropriate advance by Epstein towards a young woman who worked at the spa in Mar-a-Lago, his palatial home and club in Palm Beach. Trump told security that Epstein was barred from the property in perpetuity. The Clintons, on the other hand, continued to socialize and fundraise with Jeffrey Epstein, even after his state conviction on sex charges. The Clinton Foundation actually took a donation from Jeffrey Epstein after he had had a probable cause affidavit filed on him by the Palm Beach police in May of 2006. So Trump cut Epstein off well before state charges were brought against the sex traffickers. Today, the Clintons are desperate to distract from their own relationship with Epstein. We now know it is Bill Clinton who is identified as, I guess it is defendant or client 107, who has fought the disclosure uh, released by the federal courts this past Thursday. Here's a recap of the Jeffrey Epstein files put out by my friend Dom Lucra on X. He's a tough investigative reporter. Uh, He sums it up pretty well. Everyone was expecting to see names like Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, Tom Hanks, Chrissy Teigen, Jimmy Kimmel, and many other prominent figures in this recent drop, but that's what they wanted you to think. This is so when they released the list, we just got, it takes credibility from the citizens who are demanding full transparency and to give the people a false sense that they have learned everything, while at the same time actually preventing the release of the official Jeffrey Epstein client list. We can't allow the media or those corrupt politicians to trick us into believing that you finally got what you've been asking for. That's not true. Jeffrey Epstein's blackmail honeypot operation went on for over a decade with over 30 verified victims. Why then did they decide only to show us what one victim had to say during one month in 2015? You see, the media benefits from people believing that this was the official client list that is not the case if people think this is the elites uh, then the elites who should be prosecuted will escape accountability yet again it's time to release the entire official jeffrey epstein client list it's 2024 and in this year all lies are going to be revealed From my point of view, I see it uh, uh, pretty much like my friend, Dom Lucra. We're going to continue here with our discussion of the Jeffrey Epstein scandal. But let me remind you, this is The Roger Stone Show. I am Roger Stone, and you're tuned in right here at 77 WABC Radio. We're 770 on the AM dial. Don't touch that dial because for the next hour and a half, perhaps a little more, we're going to be talking about news, uh, history, uh, politics, style, uh, and more. Coming up on the program today, since Tuesday is President Richard Nixon's birthday, Monica Crowley joins us to talk about our 37th president, the Nixon that people didn't know, Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, She's a real fighter. She's the one who filed the ethics complaint against uh, the judge who unfairly uh, found Rudy Giuliani guilty of defamation without affording him a trial. It's also Congresswoman Elise Stefanik uh, who uh, held the hearing uh, in which the president of Harvard, Penn and MIT, all three presidents, sought to defend the rampant anti-Semitism on their campuses. It was that hearing that began the process that ended with Harvard President Claudine Gay of Harvard being forced to resign. Of course, Claudine Gay said in the New York Post that she was a victim of racism. Sorry, uh, Professor Gay, you're a victim of your own plagiarism. That's right. You got caught red-handed plagiarizing numerous articles and putting them in your own name. That's why you were fired. It had nothing to do with race. Uh, And then finally, Nick Bryant, who is the very first investigative reporter in America who actually obtained Jeffrey Epstein's little black book way back in 2012, took it to uh, multiple major media outlets for seven years, couldn't find anyone who would actually report on Epstein's sex trafficking ring and the shocking information that he had found. Well, Nick Bryant joins us right here today on The Roger Stone Show as well. I mean, Jeffrey Epstein trafficked underage girls for 25 years. He is the most prolific American child sex trafficker ever acknowledged by law enforcement. But not indicting Epstein's co-conspirators, our government is aiding and abetting child sex trafficking. A government that aids and abets child sex trafficking has woefully failed its citizens. As a country dedicated to children's safety, we must take a stand and begin to pressure the government to bring Epstein's procurers and perpetrators to justice. We cannot send a message to the world that the perpetrators in America who have wealth and power can molest our children with impunity. If we allow the Justice Department to be apathetic and unresponsive to victims and in a proven sex trafficking ring, that sends a message to millions of victims that they have no voice and there is no hope for justice. Victims in the United States and around the world need to see that Epstein's cohort of molesters will be prosecuted. The Justice Department under four presidential administrations, George Bush, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, and, yes, Joe Biden, have failed to indict the perps and procurers in Epstein's pedophile network. This is just not acceptable. As Americans, we need to know why the Department of Justice has consistently covered up the crimes of Jeffrey Epstein and his cadre of co-conspirators. The media is just as guilty, folks, they have sanitized the Epstein trafficking network by ostensibly determining that the youngest Epstein victim was 14 years old, even though multiple accounts state that Epstein actually trafficked and personally assaulted children as young as 11 or 12. The truth is, the American people can help. Americans of all stripes need to unite uh, and remedy the cur- crucial violation of our societal laws and mores. Our apathy only reinforces the government's pathological behavior. Our goal is to help organize Americans and mosques to rectify this grave injustice with peaceful, nonviolent, nonpartisan demonstrations and to compel our leaders to establish a Truth and Reconciliation Commission please go to EpsteinJustice.com, EpsteinJustice.com, and sign the petition there demanding justice for all of those who were abused, molested, or trafficked by Jeffrey Epstein. I'm Roger Stone. This is The Roger Stone Show at 77 WABC Radio. Buckle your seatbelt, because we're getting ready to talk to Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, to celebrate Richard Nixon's birthday this coming Tuesday with Monica Crowley, and then to dig even deeper into the Epstein scandal with investigative journalist Nick Bryant. I'm Roger Stone, and I'll be right back.
3: Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions
1: apply.
0: This is the Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. Presented by Legacy Precious Metals. A man who's gone through hell, but he's kept going and he's smart and he's strong and people love him. Not everybody, but people love him and respect him. Roger Stone. Now, here's Roger Stone. This
1: is The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC Radio. We are the crown jewel of talk radio. Uh, and joining us now, we are privileged to have Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, who proudly represents New York's 21st District. Uh, Elise Stefanik is in her fifth term uh, and serves as the House Republican Conference Chairman. She's also happens to be the most senior Republican in Congress from the state of New York. Uh, at the time of Elise Stefanik's first election in 2014, she was the youngest woman ever elected to Congress in US history. She continues her historic rise is now currently the youngest woman ever to serve in the top elected Republican House leadership. Elise Stefanik, thank you so much for joining us on The Roger Stone Show.
4: Great to be with you, Roger. Happy New Year. 2024 is going to be a big one.
1: It certainly, certainly is. Uh, Elise, as a 45-year veteran uh, of uh, uh, American politics, uh, I find finding politicians with real courage to be a rarity. Uh, I think there's a great tendency uh, in Washington and in Albany and other state capitals, once people get into office, They kind of go along to get along, uh, take care of their constituents, but avoid controversy uh, at all costs. You, just based on uh, a simple reading of the news, are not that person. Uh, You serve as a senior member of the Armed Services Committee, uh, the Committee on Education and Labor, the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, uh, and the Select Subcommittee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government, uh, and you have been extraordinarily active uh, on all your committees. It's so, You're fighting so many battles so effectively, uh, it's almost hard to figure out where to start. But uh, you have been uh, a, a real vocal critic of anti-Semitism on the campuses. You recently had a hearing that involved the presidents of Harvard, MIT, and Penn. Uh, Tell us about your concerns in this area uh, and what you sought to achieve with those groundbreaking hearings.
4: Well, thank you for asking, Roger. That hearing made history. The question that I posed the three university presidents uh, was a very specific moral question. It was not a political question. And the question was, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate your university's code of conduct on bullying and harassment? And the reason I asked that question in that way was I anticipated that each of the university presidents would, of course, answered yes. And instead, they all blew it in a historic fashion. And as I said in my question and response to them in real time, the world is watching. And indeed, there were over one billion views in less than a week, making it the most viewed congressional testimony in history. Let me take you a little bit further into the room and the purpose of that hearing So I am a graduate of Harvard. I was the first member of my immediate family to have the opportunity to graduate from college. And I was very proud, and I'm still proud to have broken those barriers for my family. And it has been unbelievable to hear the harrowing stories from students, from uh, Jewish faculty members, Jewish students on campus who have faced physical assault, harassment, and particularly after the terrorist attack on Israel on October 7th by Hamas, The university's absolute failure to stand strongly to protect Jewish students and stand by our greatest ally, Israel. So I encourage the committee to host that hearing. Uh, I did not anticipate that there would be such horrific answers, and uh, we've now seen the results. Two of those university presidents have been forced to resign. Penn's president, Liz McGill, was forced to resign within a week, and it took about a month for Harvard's president. They tried to hang on, they tried to cover up. Uh, Her morally bankrupt testimony, they tried to cover up, after much scrutiny, over 50 examples of egregious plagiarism in her uh, academic and professional portfolio. But ultimately, she was forced to resign as well. And it is just the tip of the iceberg, Roger. I mean, these are university presidents sitting atop institutions where – Anti-Semitism is on the rise, unfortunately, on college campuses, and it is ingrained in these DEI woke policies that we have seen really capture our higher ed institutions. So there's a lot more work going forward. Uh,
1: So uh, there's no question that your hearings kind of began the process that ended up in Harvard President Claudine Gaines' resignation. Uh, Like many Americans, I was outraged when she claimed that she was a victim of racism. There's nothing racist about recognizing plagiarism, plagiarism that violates Harvard's own rules and regulations. Uh, It is amazing that she has then sought to play the race card. Uh, How do you believe her resignation will impact the landscape of higher education, particularly Ivy League institutions?
4: Well, I think the hearing had an immediate impact. For example, Stanford and University of Michigan in, you know, a day, I believe, after the hearing, they made a public statement that calling for the genocide of Jews would, in fact, violate their school's code of conduct. And uh, I think it is going to really unveil much more work that needs to happen. And that's why this investigation is so important, Uh, looking at the governance structure of these universities. So in the case of Harvard, you have the Harvard Corporation Board that covered up the plagiarism scandal that they were aware of prior to the congressional hearing. They also covered up and unanimously supported her despite her morally bankrupt testimony. You also have the federal funding piece. So each of these universities relies on billions of U.S. taxpayer dollars, and we need to take a close look at that on behalf of the American people. There's also a foreign funding piece, and that was a question that I asked Harvard specifically in the hearing that didn't get quite as much coverage, but is still very, very important, is the schools are accepting foreign funding with strings attached to it, whether it's the curricula, that they teach, whether it's the professors that they hire, and this is part of the strain of anti-Semitism. If you look at the cutter money that is flowing into the Middle Eastern Studies programs at many universities, specifically Harvard is one of those. And then, as I mentioned, Roger, the DEI offices, which are themselves inherently racist, we need to make sure that we bring transparency and accountability and that there's no taxpayer dollars going to prop up these DEI offices, and I'll give you an example at Harvard. Even prior to Hamas's terrorist attack uh, against Israel a few years ago, hundreds of students had reached out to the office of DEI concerned about the rise of anti-Semitic slurs, anti-Semitic attacks, and harassment on campus. The office of DEI at Harvard did not even respond. That is unacceptable. Um, So there's a lot of work to do, but People are looking for leadership. And as you said, Claudine Gay in Harvard's statement claimed racism, claimed that it was a well-laid trap. It was not a trap. It was a very simple question. Uh,
1: Now, recently, uh, you filed an ethics complaint uh, against uh, Chief Judge Beryl Howell uh, in the D.C. Circuit. Uh, I'm very, very familiar with Judge Howell. She issued a number of unconstitutional rulings against me when I was uh, framed uh, for uh, lying to Congress about Russian collusion that never actually happened. I mean it's a uh, it's an oxymoron. you can't lie about something that didn't happen, but I was processed crime in an attempt to pressure me to offer false testimony against President Trump. That's not what we're here to talk about, but I'm familiar with Judge Howell. Uh, I thought Judge Howell's actions, uh, in her rulings against former Mayor Rudy Giuliani, who can be heard every weekday here on WABC, uh, were outrageous. Uh, it's interesting to know that ethics complaints against federal judges are extraordinarily rare, yet you had the courage to file one. Uh, tell us why you did this, uh, and, and what are the meat and potatoes of your complaint.
4: Well, Roger, we are seeing the greatest attack on our democracy, and that is the weaponization of the federal government to go after Joe Biden's top political opponent. And frankly, this goes back to 2016, where you had a corrupt FBI targeting the Republican nominee, Donald Trump, in the 2016 election cycle. You had the Obama administration perpetrate the false Russia hoax that, of course, led to the sham impeachment, which I was a part of front and center on Adam Schiff's uh, absolutely partisan impeachment sham. And I was proud to be the leading voice standing up against Adam Schiff. So this is all part of a timeline of weaponizing the federal government. When it comes to the district court judge, Beryl Howell, um, my complaint laid out that she has called Trump a fascist. She implied that his election would be the return of fascism. So this is not an objective judge. She also has been in close contact with Biden, senior Biden officials, uh, senior Obama officials in a personal capacity delivering public speeches. So when we're looking for rule of law, Uh, We are not seeing it with these very, very far left radical activist judges who are frankly weaponized against President Trump because Joe Biden is doing so poorly at the ballot box because he can't. Joe Biden will not be reelected fairly unless they rig it. And this is part of their attempt to do so. It's important for every American to stand up and fight for election integrity. And this is one way to do that, to make sure that we have integrity in the courts. And when we don't in this case, it's important to stand up for when you see a judge not abiding by acceptable judicial temperament, for example.
1: Uh, Well, it takes enormous courage to file these complaints. As you know, historically, unfortunately, they don't go anywhere, although I'm hopeful in your case that will not be the case. Uh, now you serve on the on the uh, oversight committee looking into the weaponization of the government are you satisfied uh, with the pace of the House Republicans investigation into the business activities of hunter Joe uh, Biden uh, and uh, uh, Uncle
4: I've been the biggest advocate for the importance of moving that along because I believe the American people deserve transparency. I have always said that I believe this will be the greatest political scandal of our lifetimes and potentially in American history. Uh, you have In the White House, currently, the head of the Biden crime family, i.e., the big guy, 10 percent for the big guy. The American people are smart. They know that's Joe Biden. We literally have uncovered, under the leadership of Jamie Comer, uh, who chairs Oversight, Jason Smith, who chairs Ways and Means, and Jim Jordan, who chairs Judiciary, uh, we have uncovered bank records of hundreds of thousands of dollars flowing from Hunter Biden's corrupt Uh, Illegal businesses with foreign adversaries like communist China flowing right into Joe Biden's bank account. Uh, This is a compromised president. He is unfit for office. And I believe it's very important that all of those facts be made clear to the American people. Right before the uh, district work period over the holidays, we saw Hunter Biden defy a subpoena and show up to the halls of Congress after coordinating with Joe Biden. That makes Joe Biden complicit in the defiance of the subpoena. So we need to hold these individuals accountable. And I believe transparency is an important part of that process, which is why we're going to continue moving uh, the investigations forward um, quickly to make sure... But thoroughly, which is really important, Uh, and then the American people can make their decision uh, come November. And uh, I believe that Joe Biden, as I said, this will be the greatest political scandal of certainly my lifetime and potentially in U.S. history.
1: Well, if you've seen evidence of money flowing, uh, say, from the Chinese that ends up in the bank account of President Joe Biden, doesn't that constitute a high crime and misdemeanor for which he should be immediately impeached?
4: Uh, Absolutely. There is a process. We are working through that process. And as you know, Roger, this is a process that the committees go through, unlike how Adam Schiff uh, and Nancy Pelosi ran snap impeachments, which were unconstitutional. uh, Our committee chairs are continuing to make sure that we do all of our due diligence. Uh, But certainly when you have hundreds of thousands of foreign dollars uh, illegally flowing through the son of now the president of the United States, Joe Biden. Uh, Those are, you know, I believe that reaches the threshold of high crimes and misdemeanors. And we are going to uh, continue to make sure that we uh, hold every witness accountable to complying with those subpoenas, including the Biden family members, and continue the process forward.
1: Uh, so, uh look, I, I was subpoenaed to appear before the January 6th committee. Uh, I fulfilled my legal obligation. I showed up. Uh, I asserted my Fifth Amendment rights, not because I had done anything wrong, not because I had anything to hide, but I had experience with the House Democrats' ability to twist your words into a process crime. Uh, Steve Bannon uh, and Peter Navarro, two supporters of the president, uh, they uh, did not submit to the subpoena they thumbed their nose at the congress they were subsequently uh, charged with contempt of congress uh, they were tried for that uh, and they're both facing uh, legal consequences in all fairness i should i should mention that both of them have appealed those convictions but hunter biden has now refused to appear consistent with a congressional subpoena uh i would say i would seem to be the next step is for the House to send uh, a, a recommendation over to the Department of Justice, a referral that he be charged. Uh, a, do you think that will happen? And B, do you think that Joe Biden's Justice Department will charge Joe Biden's son with contempt of Congress?
4: Well, I, of course, yes. Uh, we uh, Again, you cannot pick and choose when to respond to a congressional subpoena, a legal congressional subpoena, and Hunter Biden defied that importantly, though, Roger, by coordinating with Joe Biden, the sitting president of the United States. So, yes, that is I support contempt of Congress, and I believe we will move that. I'm urging that to be moved and working with my colleagues to do so. Uh, And but we are going to see, I anticipate a continuation of how political and radical the Department of Justice has become, because you and I both know that they're not going to pursue that against Hunter Biden. And part of uh, you know, part of I believe this scandal is the Department of Justice's cover up of Hunter Biden, uh, whether it's the whistleblowers from the IRS that have come forward or whether it's, uh, you know, thank goodness for that judge who did not approve of that sweetheart deal that was negotiated for Hunter Biden to try to clean things up uh, in the off year before 2024. So there's a lot more layers here that we need to, un, you know, un. To appeal to make sure that the American people know all the facts about how absolutely corrupt Joe Biden and his family are.
1: Uh, House Republicans recently elected to remove Kevin McCarthy of California as the speaker. Uh, He subsequently announced that he would be leaving Congress uh, and have selected a new speaker, uh, Michael Johnson of Louisiana, who has appeared here on 77 WABC with John Katsimatidis, uh, how do you think the new speaker is doing?
4: He's doing great. You know, I know Mike Johnson well. Uh, we worked together before he was speaker, both on the weaponization select committee. He was also my vice chair of the conference. So we worked very closely together. And I've even seen him grow in his role as speaker over the past two months. And what makes Mike unique is he's able to unify Uh, members of our conference. And you have a lot of different members with a lot of different districts and different priorities. Um, And it's important to have a speaker leads that we're all rowing in the same direction and focused on the important issues impacting the American people, whether it's the weaponization of the federal government, whether it's historic inflation, or whether it's this wide-open catastrophe at our southern and northern border, Roger, which is the top issue for almost every single American, whether you're in New York or Texas. So he is is very focused on that. I think he's doing a great job. And it's interesting. He was the first Republican speaker, um, certainly since I've been there, that earned unanimous support on the House floor from the Republican members, and that shows he was able to unify. He also understands that the stakes are very high going into this election at the presidential level. And, you know, something I hear consistently from voters, whether they're in my district or across the country, is people feel that we're losing our country in front of our very eyes. That's why this election is so important, because it's a historic election to save America.
1: Uh, folks, if you're just tuning in, this is The Roger Stone Show at 77 WABC. Uh, and we're talking to Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, who proudly represents New York's 21st District. She is an extraordinarily courageous uh, and valiant member of Congress. Unlike uh, many of the career politicians that I have known through my entire career, she is on the front lines on some of the most important issues uh, in the country uh, she takes uh, enormous political flack for her courage uh, and for the fact that she is uh, taking actions while others would shrink from doing so. Uh, Elise, you recently sued uh, New York Governor Hochul uh, over their planned expansion of mail-in voting in New York State. Tell us about, uh, about that action. Well, first,
4: Roger, I think it's important to point out, if you look at the midterms, we won the majority out of New York. So we flipped those four seats. And that's because we went on offense and we won on the issues like the crime crisis in New York State, the border crisis. So what have we seen from New York Democrats? They are trying to steal and cheat their way to win back those seats. And the way they're doing that is they're uh, trampling over the rule of law, trampling over not only the U.S. Constitution, but the of the state of New York. So my lawsuit that I filed against Kathy Hochul, Kathy Hochul with Albany Democrats who are corrupt, uh, signed into law legislation in the dark of night, allowing universal mail-in ballots. In New York State, it is very specific and explicit in the state's constitution that when you vote absentee, there are specific excuses that are outlined for being able to vote absentee. It is not so mail uh, and again, it is unconstitutional according to our state constitution. That's why I filed my lawsuit. Uh, I'm doing it in partnership with the with other colleagues uh, in the Republican delegation, as well as the National Republican Congressional Committee and the RNC. And it's important that when we see uh, the left try to rig these elections, that we take a stand as early as possible to fight back to protect election integrity, which, if we lose election integrity, as we've seen, we lose our country before our very eyes. So that's one issue in New York. Another issue that I think is worth pointing out, Roger, because it's very tied into what New York Democrats are doing, is they're trying to gerrymander the district. So, as you know, last election cycle, Democrats attempted to gerrymander the district lines in New York state. The people of New York successfully fought back and won fair lines. Now, Democrats led by Mark Elias, uh, the top far left radical election rigging a- attorney for the left, um, filed a lawsuit, and we've seen corrupt judges rule in Democrats' favor. We're going to continue to stand for the rule of law and constitution and fair district lines because that's what the people of New York deserve.
1: Uh, I was uh, aware of that. Now, let me ask you this, Congresswoman uh, there's been some discussion of Trading funding for some upgrading of the security of our southern border for more funding for the war in Ukraine. Uh, First of all, how do you feel about sending billions more to Ukraine?
4: We have significant challenges in our own country. And I will tell you, uh, our top priority is securing the southern border. It is Joe Biden who has refused to secure the southern border. And it's not just funding for the southern border. It's specific policy changes. We passed our border security bill. That's what I want to see as the starting point for any discussion uh, when it comes to uh, January and February legislative packages. And that's where the American people are. The vast majority of the American people are very concerned about our wide-open southern and northern border. We've seen it's a national security crisis, as we've seen people on the terrorist watch list pour over our southern border and northern border so that's what i'm focused on and you know our republicans are divided i do not think that we have seen from this administration or from ukraine uh, what their strategic plan is in terms of utilizing and ensuring the integrity of the dollars so i have significant concerns my focus is on securing our southern and northern borders in the u.s and our domestic issues
1: Uh, Now, you, like me, are a strong supporter of former President Donald Trump and his comeback bid for the White House. Uh, You also served in the House with uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis when he was in the House. Uh, How do you think the president is doing, Uh, and how do you think that looks?
4: I think the president is doing exceptionally well. I think he's in a stronger position today than he has been, frankly, at any point, Roger. And that goes back to including 2016. Um, I'm proud to have been the first member of Congress to endorse President Trump's re-election. Uh, we're seeing more and more people every day endorse his reelection, And most importantly, the American people are strongly with President Trump. I have said for months now that there is no primary. Uh, Trump is the presumed Republican nominee, and we need to focus on uh, the general election. That's still my position. I think President Trump is going to do exceptionally well in Iowa, well in New Hampshire, South Carolina, and it's going to be wrapped up pretty quickly here. And I'm proud to be one of the top surrogates and one of the top um, you know, leaders in the nation standing up and supporting President Trump's re-election. I also think what is quite telling is if you look at the general election polling in some of the key swing states, Joe Biden is significantly underwater and in trouble, and President Trump is winning most of those swing states. That is the best polling that we have ever seen. Um, but that means that the Democrats are going to get desperate. They got desperate in 2020. They're going to get even more desperate. And when that happens, uh, we saw that they rigged elections, that they shredded election integrity, and we need to make sure that we have a process and a strategy to ensure that we have a free and fair and, importantly, constitutional election in 2024.
1: You know, there's been obviously a lot of talk about a Donald Trump-Nikki-Haley ticket. Uh, I think it is being generated with people with an agenda. I spoke to President Trump on New Year's Eve. He, tells me he has no such plan at this time. Uh, But it is, uh, as you know, a very popular parlor game in both New York and Washington to speculate about who the ideal vice president might be. Every single short list I have seen by anybody who knows anything about politics, well, it has Elise Stefanik's name on it. Now, I know you can't run for this job. I know people don't run for this job. Personally, I think you would be a terrific pick Uh, How do you feel about being speculated about? Well,
4: I'm honored that my name is even being mentioned, Roger, by you. But my focus is I serve as the House Republican Conference chair. Uh, I serve as the representative for New York's 21st district. And again, I am one of the top surrogates across the country, uh, ensuring that we're in the strongest position to elect uh, President Trump to be the 45th and 47th president of the United States. That is what my focus is on. Uh, I'd, of course, be honored to serve in a Trump administration in any capacity. Uh, but we have so much work to do. The stakes are so high. And on the first part of your question, uh, the latest I checked on the news was that the Haley campaign was running attack ads against President Trump right now. So that's a non-starter. Uh, and we're focusing on unifying voters and the American people in support in support of President Trump.
1: Uh, final question here as we're out of time. Uh, what do you think the prospects are, uh, Congresswoman, that? America will have a free, fair, honest, transparent presidential election in 2024.
4: I'll tell you, Roger, we saw this even before we got through the on year in the final days of 2023. What did we see in Colorado and Maine? We saw Democrats starting to get absolutely desperate, trying to remove President Trump from the ballot. The most undemocratic, unconstitutional act that you can make. And that shows, I think, what we're up against going into this election cycle, that the weaponization of the federal government that we saw in 2020 is going to be on steroids from the Biden administration and all of the ecosystem on the left. So the American people need to stay vigilant. We need to stand up. That's why. That's one of the many reasons why I filed those judicial complaints. It's one of the many reasons why I have a backbone of steel and stand up strongly for election integrity, whether it's my home state of New York or whether it's the work that I'm doing on the weaponization of the federal government. Uh, But I don't put anything past the Democrats. We need to make sure that we have constitutional elections in 2024.
1: All right. I want to thank Elise Stefanik, uh, who represents New York's 21st district for joining us today on the Roger Stone show. Congresswoman, thank you. Happy new year and God bless you. Thank you, Roger. 2024 is going to be a great year. Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, George W. Bush, and Donald
0: Trump. And a friend of mine for a long time, he uh, only likes politics. If you ask him about how are the Yankees doing, he has no interest. If you ask him almost anything, he likes politics and he's a professional at the highest level. Roger Stone. All of these presidents relied on one man to secure their seat in the Oval Office. That man is Roger Stone. This is The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. Presented by Legacy Precious Metals.
1: This is Roger Stone and we're back with The Roger Stone Show this coming Tuesday, January 9th. Is the 111th birthday of our 37th president, Richard Nixon, born in 1913, and we're going to kick off this segment with a little musical interlude. Nixon now,
5: Nixon now.
1: Joining us now for a celebration of the life of our 37th president, Richard Milhouse Nixon, is a woman who knew him well. Monica Crowley, uh, who served as assistant secretary of the Treasury uh, under President Donald Trump, but also served as a longtime aide to President Richard Nixon in his post-presidential years, joins us on The Roger Stone Show now. Mónica, welcome to the Roger Stone Show.
3: Thank you so much for having me on this very special occasion. As we have said, you know, talking about Richard Nixon, it's my favorite subject ever. So thank you for giving me, giving me the opportunity.
1: People always say to me, "Tell me something about Richard Nixon that I didn't know." Okay, here's one: Richard Nixon played the piano, the violin. Uh, the, uh, accordion, uh, the saxophone and the clarinet, yet he had had no musical training and he couldn't read music. Most people don't he know did. that.
3: Yeah, he did it all by ear, and he was self-taught with so many things Richard Nixon was self-taught. You know, he was a true intellectual. He was a brilliant, brilliant man, but he was a true intellectual, and he used to joke to me, Roger, he's like, well, don't tell too many people that because it'll kill my, my political appeal. But he truly was an intellectual, and that extended to all areas of the arts and music. He had a great appreciation for art and and the musical piece was a really important one that he didn't show to a lot of people. Once in a while he'd sit at a piano at an event and and play and it would always blow people away because they had no idea. I just want to share with you a really special story regarding this issue about Nixon's innate musical abilities. So there was a period of time in the early to mid-1990s when I was working with him during the last years of his life when I became sick with mononucleosis. And so I was confined to my house for, I don't know, seven or ten days, and I was in central New Jersey. President Nixon's office and his residence was in northern New Jersey. So he decided after day five or six when I was no longer contagious but still very fatigued, he said, You know what, Monica, I'm gonna grab my driver and I'm gonna drive down and visit you And I said, Mr. President, that is completely unnecessary and he said, No, 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 I, I wanna do it, I wanna do it. And it was at a period of time, Roger, as you will recall, you know, for the, the final twenty years of his life, he continued to wage these Watergate battles. He had, you know, and it's very reminiscent of what we're experiencing now with President Trump. They exercised a lot of lawfare against Richard Nixon related to Watergate, and it lasted literally until the day he died. And he kept losing case after case. Um, Because of these corrupt judges, and, and we started to see a corrupt legal system, as we are now really seeing with President Trump. But on the day he came to visit me at my home in central New Jersey, he happened to win one of the cases. And it was a really big case, Roger. It was a case that he had been fighting for, again, about 20 years at that point. And it was with regard to the fact that the government had impounded his personal papers and a lot of the presidential papers as part of their Watergate investigation. So Nixon countersued the U.S. government to say, wait a minute, these papers were my personal property and the government has withheld them from me for 20 years. He won that case and the ruling came down in his favor where the government had to uh, provide him a rich uh, restitution for holding on to his personal property for 20 years so we got a judgment of as i recall several million dollars and he got the news while he was in my home and he said monica we've got to celebrate and he walked over to my family piano roger and he sat down, and he played Happy Days Are Here Again, and he asked me to sing the lyrics along with him as he played. That is such a beautiful memory for me, and I'm so happy to be able to share it with you and this audience today.
1: One of the other things people didn't know about him that is, is that he had a, a great uh, a wine cellar there in Saddle River. He had great knowledge and appreciation for great wine. I remember on one occasion, uh, I had put together a number of private meetings for him. He wanted to meet with younger reporters who had not been around to cover Watergate in these off-the-record dinners in which he talked mostly about foreign policy. But on one occasion, he asked me to bring uh, Margaret Tutwiler, who was the chief deputy to uh, Secretary of State James A. Baker, to dinner. Uh, And he asked me several times about the exact right wine. Ultimately, he chose a very rare and very expensive wine. Uh, And before dinner, he gave a long dissertation uh, about the history of this particular wine. Uh, Now, the president, uh, by his own admission, uh, was uh, not a heavy drinker. uh, And I found that he was never an individual who was retrospective. As he himself once said, always look forward, never look back. Uh, And therefore, in the many hours I spent with him, I had a hard time getting him to talk about some of the incredible historic events to which he had been a party. Very hard to get him to talk about John Kennedy or Dwight Eisenhower or Joe McCarthy uh, or, or the 1960 debate or being attacked by communist mobs in Venezuela. Except, however, after he had a cocktail or two. Then he would become (laughs) loquacious, and you would learn so much about history. He was particularly proud of his martini-making skills. Uh, He referred to them as silver bullets. So when you would get uh, to 6 o'clock, either in his home on the Upper East Side of New York or later in his home in Saddle River, New Jersey... Uh, he would say to you, hey, do you feel like a civil bullet? And I said, certainly, Mr. President. Uh, and here was his recipe. Uh, he took a jar of olives. He drained it. He filled it with water. He yeah. re-put, placed the cap. He shook it vigorously. He drained the water. Then he filled it with dry vermouth, and he had put it in the refrigerator uh thinking ahead as nixon always did he chilled a couple of martini glasses they were already in the freezer splash them with water and throw them in the freezer then he took a uh, a silver cocktail shaker he said now this is very important it must be a mixture of both cubed and cracked ice Uh, he in this case we were drinking vodka although generally speaking he preferred gin Uh, he covered the ice Uh, in a high-quality vodka, and then he shook vigorously for what appeared to me to be a long time. Then he removed the glasses from the freezer, poured in this concoction from the cocktail shaker. I point out, by the way, that so far he had added no vermouth, Uh, and then he took the jar out of the refrigerator and dropped in two olives. Now, he pointed out to me, if there are not... Tiny shards of ice on the surface of the martini. Well, he said, that means you effed it up. (laughs) Uh, And it was superb. And I said, wow, Mr. President, that's a great martini recipe. And he said, yeah, I got it from Winston Churchill.
3: Oh, I love that story. You know, I am not a big drinker and I've never been. And by the time I got to President Nixon, you know, you are correct. He was never a big drinker, but he was a wine connoisseur and he had a beautiful wine cellar. And by the time I get to, got to him, he was in his mid to late 70s. And so he had, unfortunately, experienced the onset of a particular medical condition. And I can't recall what it is, Roger. But the doctors told him that he could, it was genetic and that he could not have any more alcohol. And so he was really bummed out uh, because he had this beautiful wine cellar and wasn't able to partake. So one day he brought me down to the wine cellar and he said, it's really unfortunate, Monica, that I can't drink any of this beautiful wine because the collection was extraordinary, Roger. He had like bottles given to him by Charles de Gaulle (laughs) that he had never had never drunk. And he said, I'm not going to be able to drink any of this. And then he pulled out a bottle of 1913 Lafitte Rothschild and he pulled it out and he showed it to me. And he said, Monica, this is my birth year, 1913, Lafitte Rothschild. And the, the bottle at that time was worth, I don't know, maybe $100,000. And he said, Monica, the doctors tell me I can't drink wine, but I have news for them and for you. If I make it to my 100th birthday, I am opening this wine bottle (laughs) and I'm going to drink it. And I said, well, you better, Mr. President. First of all, you better last to 100 years old and then you better drink this. Uh, And we had a good laugh. He had given me a couple of bottles from his collection, um, which I still have because they were extraordinary gifts. I'll tell you, you know, because I wasn't a drinker, I, I would have maybe half a glass of wine from his collection at some of these dinners with journalists and heads of state. But when I would go over to the house on a regular afternoon to go over some things, he would say after five o'clock, he would say, Monica, I'm going to make you a Gimlet. And so, Roger, while your special drink with Richard Nixon was a silver bullet martini, my special drink with him was a Gimlet. And as you say, he really enjoyed gin. So it was gin, gin with lime a spot of lime and i guess he thought that was an appropriate girly drink for me and i loved it (laughs) i loved it and we used to share a gimlet together Uh,
1: many people don't realize that in his post-presidential year he remained uh, in touch with world leaders that he had known in some cases since his vice presidency but certainly during his presidency Uh, He would make trips uh, to both China and Russia in his 80s. But because he had suffered from phlebitis, it was very dangerous for him to sit in an airplane seat for hours on end. So in these transcontinental flights, he would walk up and down the aisle uh, of the plane on the instructions of his doctor. Uh, Recognize this is a man in his uh, advanced 80s but still committed to world peace. Uh, I endeavored very hard to get him a meeting with Bill Clinton. Uh, He wanted to meet with Clinton, not for the status of it, because he he thought that things he had learned in both China and Russia, uh, and his unique experience and outlook uh, on what was happening in those nations and the relationship to the United States, Uh, would be beneficial to the United States of America. He wanted to tell the chief executive. Uh, There were three meetings scheduled between Clinton uh, and Nixon, uh, and all three times at the last minute, those meetings would be canceled. Nixon privately blamed Hillary Clinton. She's a red hot, he used to say, which was a 1950s expression for those who were extreme liberals. Uh, And ultimately, not only did the meeting take place, but Nixon and Clinton really hit it off. Uh, They both came from poor backgrounds. They had both lost races for governor to make a comeback and be elected president. uh, And they found common ground. Bill Clinton was also smart enough to know that if he received Richard Nixon and he received Richard Nixon's foreign policy advice, he was also buying himself immunity from any public criticism of his conduct of public affairs uh, from, at that point, an esteemed uh, former president. Recently, Monica, I'm sure you saw this, there was an article in Politico Uh, which talked about the fact that among younger conservatives, there is finally beginning to be some retrospective examination of the great accomplishments of Richard M. Nixon. Uh, The great tragedy of history is that when people like us, who both revere and loved him, say Nixon, people's response is, oh, Watergate. Uh, And there's so much more to the man. Uh, he negotiated a strategic arms limitation uh, with the Soviets. He skillfully got the Chinese out of the Soviet orbit, brought them in out of the cold. But it was at a time that China was a backwards, dirt-poor, non-technical agrarian society. There was no way for Richard Nixon to know that 30 years later... The Bushes and the Clintons would give China most favored nation trading status. And in the case of Bill Clinton, that he would actually sell our most guarded military secrets, our missile targeting technology to the Chinese in return for illegal campaign contributions. He also desegregated the American public schools. He did away with the military draft. He gave us the 18-year-old vote. Uh, he began and launched the war on cancer. He gave us federal revenue sharing so that your tax dollars were, pay, were spent more effectively at the local level. And, of course, we talked about this recently with the passing of Dr. Henry Kissinger. He unilaterally saved Israel from complete annihilation In the 1973 Yom Kippur War, by airdropping $36 million worth of lethal aid to the Israelis who had their backs against the sea, were out of ammunition uh, after a surprise attack by the Egyptians and the Syrians. And he did so over the objections of Dr. Kissinger, over the objections of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, over the objections... Of virtually everyone in his own national foreign policy apparatus it was in my opinion perhaps one of Richard Nixon's greatest moments in public office
3: yes absolutely and you just listed an extraordinary litany of achievements by this man and there are so many more as well But you know what he used to say to me, Roger, that uh, very unfairly, history had a tendency to boil down presidencies to two things. And, of course, there's so much more. And, and we're talking about his presidency, but, he, of course, he was vice president for eight years under President Eisenhower. He served in the Senate. He served in the House in an extraordinary record of public service and tremendous achievements. You know, one of the things that, um, that I always say when people ask me about President Nixon, they always say, what was he like? And I always lead off by saying that he was a true visionary in the sense that we've had a few visionaries as president, but it, it's rare to have that in a leader where he could see what the world was going to look like in 20 or 30 years down the road and then make American policy while in office to anticipate that world. I think you're correct that nobody could anticipate uh, that China would emerge as the kind of extreme adversary <laughs> that it has, but Richard Nixon was nothing if not adaptable And so he would have adapted his policy positions, his orientation toward Beijing to change with the times. And today he would be absolutely leading the charge against a hostile adversary in Beijing uh, committed to unrestricted warfare against the United States and the West. But getting back to what he's remembered for, you know, he used to say presidencies are unfairly boiled down to two things, one good and one bad. And he said, look, Lyndon Johnson, uh, he's known for civil rights and the war in Vietnam. Um, He said, in my case, it's going to be the opening to China as the good thing and Watergate as the bad thing. And he would say it's so unfortunate because we did so many other things. And, you know, now in retrospect, I think it's increasingly clear that Richard Nixon was perhaps the second uh, modern casualty of the deep state military industrial complex that needed to remove a president like him who was committed to peace. And you and I talked about this on my podcast, Roger, recently, that perhaps JFK was the first casualty because he did not want to engage with uh, any kind of escalation in Vietnam. So they removed him, eliminated him from the scene. Richard Nixon was uh, committed to withdrawing all troops from Vietnam and securing a peace with honor, which he did. These people in the deep state and military industrial complex and establishment and uniparty Peace ain't profitable to them. War is the only way to go. And so a peacemaker, a peacemaker in office, like a JFK, like a Richard Nixon, like a Donald Trump, they cannot have that. So they need to wage war against that person until that person is weakened or can be neutralized and removed from the scene. So we're seeing the same cycle over and over again. And unfortunately, these presidents have no idea what's coming at them. Right? Richard Dick had no idea uh, what was being fed to him in terms of a setup with the Watergate burglary, and then all of the bad information coming from people like John Dean and others who were feeding him bad information, and therefore he would make bad decisions, leading ultimately to his resignation. Very unfair. But I think now, with the passage of time and with the perspective of a Donald Trump, we are getting to a more accurate and honest view about what actually happened to Richard Nixon.
1: Uh, Absolutely true. Recently declassified documents, which got almost no media coverage at all, other than a superb piece written by James Rosen of Newsmax for Real Clear Politics, show that the Central Intelligence Agency was well aware of the plan to break into the Watergate in advance and that they actually infiltrated the Watergate burglar team to keep tabs on that operation and also to tip off the D.C. police who were waiting for the burglars. It's also very important to point out that there is no evidence whatsoever that Richard Nixon knew about or approved the break-in at the Watergate Hotel, Uh, in fact, uh, is recorded in Bob Haldeman's uh, biography and also recorded in his diaries, Nixon was shocked because there was no good reason, no political reason to break into the Watergate. He was leading in the polls in 49 states. He was on the cusp of winning the greatest presidential electoral victory in American history. And he was also savvy enough about American politics that he knew there was nothing of value, no information of value to be had at the Democratic National Committee. There is very little question if you read Haldeman's diaries. Nixon was on the verge of reorganizing the national security apparatus. He was committed to taking power away from the Central Intelligence Agency and other unelected bureaucrats. He posed an existential threat. Uh, to the military industrial complex the same people that i argue took down john f kennedy in a much bloodier fashion uh, removed richard nixon in a silent coup uh, and when you examine watergate uh, it-, it pales in comparison of the efforts by barack obama and joe biden to use the full legal authority of the United States government, utilizing evidence that they knew was fabricated. The Steele dossier and the false claim that the Democratic National Committee had been the victim of an online hack by the Russians to justify an illegal and illegitimate effort to bring down a duly elected president. The same people who murdered President John F. Kennedy, the same institutions that took down Richard Nixon, the same folks who attempted to assassinate and then remove President Ronald Reagan uh, in Iran-Contra are the same institutional forces uh, that ginned up the phony Russian collusion hoax and also ran two phony impeachments against Donald Trump. Uh, it is. Uh, I did a long podcast on human events with Jack Posobiec this past week uh, laying a lot of this out. Uh, what's amazing is the American people have no curiosity about Watergate. They just buy the complete, completely fraudulent Woodward and Bernstein uh, narrative of events uh, and they just buy it without reservation and so much of it uh, is... Not true. I am really glad that Richard Nixon is finally starting to get his historical due in terms of an extraordinarily successful presidency.
3: Yes, I completely agree with you. Nothing makes me happier. And I've got to tell you, Roger, when he passed away in 1994, I'd spent the previous four years working with him. And uh, so closely. And when he passed away, Bill Sapphire, who had been a tough speechwriter in his White House and at the time then was writing weekly columns for the New York Times, he invited me to come and talk to him in Washington. And I sat down, we were having some lunch at the Navy Club in DC, Army Navy Club. And he said, Well, kid, what are you going to do next? And I said, well, I'm uh, I'm not quite sure, Mr. Sapphire. And then sort of off the cuff, Roger, I mentioned that I had been keeping a daily diary in which I was reconstructing every conversation I ever had with Richard Nixon over the course of four years. And I'll never forget, Sapphire put down his spoon and he looked at me and he said, what? And I, I repeated it. And he said, well, kid, I know what you're going to do now. He said, you're going to write a book. Because future generations need to know the Richard Nixon that you came to know in his final years when he would be as complete a person as possible. And when I said, well, I don't want to violate any any confidentiality that I had with him or betray him and his confidences in any way, uh, now that he's gone, Sapphire said to me, you know what, kid? He said the reason you were there is because he he knew you were brilliant and he knew that you were taking notes in every conversation and he wanted you to do this to speak when he could no longer speak and to let future generations know the kind of man and leader that he was. And so I very proudly wrote two volumes, Nixon Off the Record and Nixon in Winter. They're still available on Amazon. Please go find them and and read them. I am so proud of those books because I told the truth about the man he really was and not the caricature presented by the left-wing propaganda press, left-wing historian, by the culture in movies like Nixon by Oliver Stone and the rest of it. Roger, I wanted to stand up and tell the rest of the world exactly the kind of person and man Richard Nixon was. He was an extraordinary human being. He was brilliant, of course. He was a true intellectual and a visionary, as I said, but he was also a good man on top of being a great man. He was a good man. He was kind and generous and giving and caring and compassionate and very funny, which most people did not know. And I used to say, Mr. President, why didn't you show this to the American people more? Not that it would have saved his skin in Watergate, but it would have bought him some more goodwill. I think, you know, when the when the crap inevitably hits the fan and he said, look, I was a a serious man with a seriousness of purpose. Um, But he could be very funny, had a wonderful, self-effacing sense of humor, just a good and decent human being. And it breaks my heart to this day what they did to him, as it breaks my heart what they are trying to do with Donald Trump but you know nixon used to say uh, when people would ask him how is history going to remember you he would say well it depends who writes the history and so i am very proud to have written two volumes of history that actually tells the truth about who he was and what he did
1: Uh, it was richard nixon who said the greatness comes not when things go always good for you but when you take some knocks you suffer some defeats when sadness comes because it is only when one has been in the deepest valley that one can appreciate the majesty of the highest mountaintop. Monica Crowley, thank you so much for joining us on The Roger Stone Show. Tell us quickly where people can see or hear your podcast.
3: Yes. Thank you so much, Roger. It's called the Monica Crowley podcast. You can get it wherever you get your podcast. So Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher. And I want to thank you, Roger, because you joined me for my Thanksgiving uh, holiday show where we deconstructed a lot of this with regard to President Nixon. But we really did a deep dive on the Kennedy assassination. And I have to tell you, Roger, that that show, I just got my ratings from Labor Day through the end of the year. And that show was my highest rated show. and had the most downloads. So I appreciate you, Roger, for that. Please, everybody, go check out my podcast. Subscribe. It's free, uh, and it will automatically download to your phone with every new show. I do it a couple of times a week, and we've got a big year ahead of us. So please check that out. Also on social media, Instagram at Monica Crowley underscore, and Twitter and true social at Monica Crowley.
1: All right. Happy birthday, Richard M. Nixon, 111 years old, this coming Tuesday, January 9th. Monica Crowley, thank you so much for joining us on The Roger Stone Show.
3: Always a pleasure, Roger. Thank you.
0: This is The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. Presented by Legacy Precious Metals. A man who's gone through hell. But he's kept going, and he's smart, and he's strong, and people love him. Not everybody, but people love him and respect him. Roger Stone. Now, here's Roger Stone.
1: Welcome back. This is the Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. Now would be an excellent time for you to go to the App Store to get the 77 WABC App loaded into your phone. That way you won't miss any of the extraordinary programming, both talk and entertainment that we feature here at 77WABC. So it's easy, uh, it's uh, free, uh, and you won't miss any of our great programming here. I highly, highly recommend it. Joining us now with Jeffrey Epstein, the convicted sex trafficker and pedophile back in the news, uh, is Nick Bryant. Nick Bryant is a investigative journalist and author, but more importantly, I think he may be the first U.S.-based reporter to begin investigating the Epstein network as early as 2012, when it was Nick Bryant who first acquired Jeffrey Epstein's Little Black Book. This was seven years before the Epstein case broke nationally. Uh, Nick Bryant pitched an article on the Little Black Book for three solid years to various mainstream media outlets until in 2015, finally, Gawker published. Uh, his article regarding Epstein's Little Black Book uh, and what was being done to children. Nick Bryant, thanks for joining us on The Roger Stone Show. Glad to be on The Roger Stone Show. Uh, As you know, I uh, wrote a book, The Clinton's War on Women, in 2015. uh, After uh, your Gawker article published, Uh, I relied heavily on your article with full accreditation Uh, You are really the individual whose doggedness broke this story. The cover-up of Jeffrey Epstein and his activities uh, at the highest levels of the U.S. government, as well as state governments, has been extraordinary. Uh, But none of what has unfolded in the last several days uh, regarding what some may think are new revelations about Jeffrey Epstein— Nothing at all, none of this would have happened without your persistence and your dogged efforts. So my hat is off to you.
2: Well, thank you, Roger. I really appreciate it. Uh,
1: Tell us about that experience of, uh, I know you can't reveal your source, but here you got journalistic dynamite when you got Epstein's Little Black Book. Uh, You have stressed that, Not everybody in the book has done something wrong, uh, but many did. Uh, What was it like taking this to major media outlets uh, and and having them say, oh, I'm sorry, we're not interested. Tell us about that.
2: Well, I knew it was going to be an uphill battle. I have, I've written a book called the Franklin scandal about a child trafficking network uh, that operated in the uh, eighties and No one wanted to touch that article because that particular it was it was much like Epstein's network. It trafficked children from coast to coast, and it was covered up by state and federal law enforcement. And also it had a nexus with intelligence and also blackmail. And I was pitching that story. I pitched that story to just about everybody. And they just looked at me with skepticism or incredulity. It's interesting I would look into these editors' eyes as I would pitch that story to them, and I could see like, wow, this is a big story. But then I could see like this blankness set in. And what was going on with them was cognitive dissonance. They thought to themselves, this is a horrible story, and I really need to help Nick Bryant. Or I could just write Nick Bryant off as crazy and have a nice dinner with my family tonight. So that's what happened with when I was pitching an article on the Franklin scale, and, and basically the same thing happened when I was pitching an article on the Epstein scale, even with the Black Book. But I should mention that the editors that I would pitched the Franklin Scandal to, uh, I estranged a number of them for some inexplicable reason. And they, would not, they wouldn't even return my emails at a certain point. But I did get to a lot of editors with the Black Book. And not one of them wanted to touch it, except for Gawker, which is kind of ironic because Gawker is considered to be the bad boys on the block. And these other publications that I pitched were ostensibly uh, draped in integrity and truth and justice. But it was ultimately Gawker that published the black book. Uh,
1: What was the public reaction to your Gawker article at the time?
2: Well, Gawker had a lot of hits. On the article, and I also had passenger manifests at that point, and there were there were a lot of uh, passenger manifests, uh, and and I wrote an article about those too. So there was there were a number of uh, comments in on Gawker's website. It's interesting though, uh, every media and magazine has talked about the Black Book ad nauseum, and there's only been one publication that's really accredited me with the black book and that was vanity fair so i find that really perplexing that here i you know i put the black book up and thousands of articles have been written about the black book and only one publication has attributed the black book to me i find that kind of mind boggling
1: yeah, uh, Vicki Ward, who is a very tough investigative reporter, who, who contacted me after, I think, reading my uh, book, The Clinton's War on Women, uh, which has a long, long chapter uh, on Epstein, uh, leaning on many accredited sources, uh, evidently wrote an extensive piece for Vanity Fair on Epstein. But Bill Clinton himself, Uh, leaned on Graydon Carter, uh, the uh, publisher editor there at Vanity Fair to spike that story. Uh, The efforts uh, by the government, including state prosecutors in Florida, federal prosecutors uh, during four presidencies uh, to uh, to suppress the information about Jeffrey Epstein is extraordinarily hard to believe. Unless you buy the claim of many uh, that Epstein was working for, among others, not only the Central Intelligence Agency, but also most likely the Mossad. Uh, we know that when his home in New York was raided, first of all, he'd already been taken into custody, uh, that they removed boxes and boxes and boxes of videotapes, presumably blackmail tapes of some of his marks with uh, his victims, yet we have no idea what happened to that material, uh, and it's never been made public. Why what's the cover-up? About them? Go ahead, Go ahead
2: Michael. Well, uh, what's was- interesting about that is the FBI took all these DVDs out of Epstein's safe and so what happened with me is the Department of Justice said the case was closed. So I did a FOIA on not the DVDs, but the reports on the DVDs. And then I got an email back saying that the case was ongoing. <laughs> so I doubt that I'm going to get uh, reports on those DVDs in the near future.
1: Yeah, the, the government conveniently changes their story uh, when they need to. Uh, you and i were both accosted by a guy named Stephen hoffenberg hoffenberg uh had gone to prison himself uh he had some kind of a a credit bureau he got jammed up in a major financial crime but uh, among his uh, young trainees was one jeffrey epstein Uh, and i i think he told you the same thing that that he told me which was that epstein was running a child sex trafficking ring, that Epstein was himself a child rapist, and he insisted to me, uh, until the day he died, that Epstein was going to be arrested by the FBI. Uh, After a while, he called me so religiously and so regularly uh, that I finally blocked him. Uh, But in the end, Steve Hoffenberg turned out to be right, didn't he? It's
2: interesting. I had the same experience with Steve Hoffenberg that you had. I didn't know whether or not he was veritable because he had some idiosyncrasies. He had, I think at that point, prior to Bernie Madoff, he had participated in the largest Ponzi scheme ever in American history. And he was calling me incessantly also. So I didn't know exactly what to make of the information that he was giving me. But- You're right. The information that he gave both of us turned out to be correct.
1: Well, I I was skeptical. Uh, I talked about this in the opening of the show, but there's no question that the Palm Beach City police uh, put together a much more comprehensive case in which Epstein would have been charged with uh, uh, child rape uh, uh, against multiple victims, Uh, but amazingly, The state's attorney in Palm Beach County, uh, after negotiations with Epstein's high-powered lawyers, uh, ended up giving him a veritable slap on the wrist uh, where he was given a short sentence. Remind me how many months, because I get this wrong.
2: He was given uh, 18 months in a county jail. Uh,
1: But in Florida, uh, those convicted of sex crimes go to the state penitentiary. Why would Jeffrey Epstein... Uh, be treated differently By the way the, the Palm Beach County Jail is air conditioned and quite nice It's a correctional facility The state penitentiaries in Florida Not so nice uh, Why would Jeffrey Epstein Get this special treatment
2: That case is very interesting Because the Palm Beach Police Department Were on it for a year And they, <clears throat> they went about it very Diligently because after all there was this very wealthy man who was uh, an ostensible, ostensibly philanthropic. Um, and they thought that they, they, they knew that they needed a very high bar if they were going to uh, indict Jeffrey Epstein. And what happened was the Palm Beach Police Department found five underage victims of Jeffrey Epstein. And... They had their corroboration of a number of other people corroborating those victims. And they also knew of 17 additional victims. So the Palm Beach Police Department knew of 23 Epstein victims. And a grand jury was called, which is very strange in Florida because grand juries are generally reserved for capital cases. But in a grand jury, a special prosecutor is chosen and he presents evidence to the grand jurors who are just regular citizens that have shown up for a grand jury duty. And he's the one that calls the witnesses and shows them evidence. And he basically sways the grand jurors any way he wants to. There was a New York Supreme Court judge that said grand special prosecutors and grand juries have so much power over grand jurors that they could get them to indict a ham sandwich. So with Epstein... That prosecutor, Kirchner, was aware of 23 victims because the Palm Beach Police Department was aware of 23 victims. And he only called one victim, and he skewered her. So that, that grand jury returned with no child abuse indictments against Jeffrey Epstein. That was obviously very, very corrupt. And Michael Ryder, who was the police chief, of the Palm Beach Police Department, who was really, he's a hero in this. I mean, he was really uh, harassed really heavily. But he went to the feds, and he said, we need justice for these girls. And at this point, the feds had a list of over 30 epstein victims. And according to Alexander Acosta, when he was transitioning to Labor Secretary for uh Trump, the Trump administration. He was asked why he let Epstein off so lightly, and Acosta responded, "I was told that Epstein was intelligence, and it was above my pay grade, and to leave it
1: alone." Yeah, that is uh, uh, that is very damning. In an interview, when I wrote my book, writer told me uh, that the state's attorney, whose name I believe was Kirshner, originally so, sure. planned to charge Epstein only with solicitation. And ultimately, only because Ryder objected, he changed it to solicitation of a minor, which is uh, uh, still not sex trafficking. It's a serious charge, but a charge which, nonetheless, uh, he got a slap on the wrist for. It was Ryder, as you correctly point out, who went uh, to uh, uh, Alexander Acosta, uh, who then tried to seal the case, basically rubber stamping the state's conclusions and And then sealed the case. Uh, If it really wasn't for the work of uh, uh, a great reporter, Julie Brown of the Miami Herald, who stayed on this story after everyone else had lost interest, uh, that Jeffrey Epstein would not have ultimately been arrested uh, and then potentially committed suicide, which leads me to uh, the obviously the most interesting question. Nick Bryant, do you think Jeffrey Epstein killed himself? I don't
2: like to speculate on that. I mean, there are certainly a number of anomalies uh, that night that occurred in that prison. And I, if someone's looking at it objectively, they would think to themselves, look at these various anomalies and how, why did they happen? And why did all these things just align on the night that Jeffrey Epstein killed himself? But I try to stay away from that type of speculation, because I think the most important thing in the Jeffrey Epstein case is justice. We need justice. The government is not going to give us justice. The media, the mainstream media, they dig up dirt on, on salacious dirt on Jeffrey Epstein, and they think that that's uh, their mission, is to just dig up dirt. They're, no major media has called for any, any, any type of justice in this case. And that's why I formed Epstein Justice, uh, because we need a Truth and Reconciliation Commission to really look at Jeffrey Epstein and his cadre of criminals. We cannot let this get covered up. And I believe that if someone drills deep into Jeffrey Epstein, they will come across the cesspool that is currently governing our country. Um, the congressional approval rating is 17 percent. So it's very obvious that our legislators are not acting in our best interest. They enact laws that allow the government to trample on our constitutional rights. They enact laws that, that cause the wealth polarization that we're seeing today. So our legislators aren't acting in our best interest. And I've written two books on CIA sexual blackmail and honey traps, and I believe that a number of our legislators are compromised. And if they're not compromised, they're willing to make Faustian pacts. When I was running the Franklin scandal, I got to one of the blackmail photographers of that particular network, and I asked him, "How does this work?" And he said, "It's like you're, once you're compromised, it's like you're on a yacht, and it's a beautiful yacht, and it's a beautiful day." And you can have anything you want on this yacht. But if you decide to get off the yacht, the people on the yacht are going to make sure that you drown. So there's once someone is compromised, there is zero incentive for them to come out and call for the truth. I think that that's one of the real problems in our political system right now that isn't addressed by the mainstream media. Uh,
1: I know, interestingly, uh, for a fact that Jeffrey Epstein, Uh, retained uh, the criminal defense attorney, David Schoen, on the Thursday before his death, uh, that he paid uh, Schoen by wire a very substantial retainer on the Friday before his death. He also made arrangements that same day uh, for an apartment uh, uh, near where Epstein was incarcerated so they could begin working on... uh, Epstein's defense, uh, and then Epstein allegedly killed himself. That doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, And therefore, uh, I join those who doubt uh, that Jeffrey Epstein killed himself. It's interesting uh, that uh, Congressman Tim Burchette, uh, in a very interesting uh, interview recently, said that he believed that many of his colleagues in the Congress were victims of honeypot operations uh, and that nefarious entities had recorded their indiscretions uh, to use as blackmail leverage. Uh, it was very interesting that Burchette, in an interview with uh, Betty Johnson, uh, said that, uh, well, you know, you, you, you get elected, Uh, and you're out in public, maybe out of town, and somebody very attractive, could be a man, could be a woman, uh, starts to chat you up. Uh, You have uh, a few cocktails, uh, and uh, before you know it, you're naked in some hotel room. Uh, And then later, much later, on the house floor, uh, just before a big vote, somebody comes up to you and says, well, hey, uh, you know, there's some tape on you. Were you in such and such a hotel? Or who was it you were with? Or do you really want people to know that all that happened? Uh, Bruchette says he believes this happens all the time, uh, but it would it would speak to what you just said, Nick, which is, Washington D.C. is a lot more like the Netflix show House of Cards than it, than it isn't. Uh, you wrote an epic book on the Franklin scandal. Uh, tell us, uh, 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 and this has gotten far far less media coverage uh, than the Epstein mm-hmm. scandal, but it's a much much bigger uh, scandal involving people at the highest level of the U.S. government. Uh, Tell us the name of your book uh, and uh, tell us about the Franklin Scandal. Well, I've written two books uh,
2: about CIA sexual blackmail. The first one was the Franklin Scandal and the second one was Confessions of a D.C. Madam, the Politics of Sex Lines and Videotape. The, The Franklin Scandal, the full title of it is the Franklin Scandal, a story of power brokers, child abuse and betrayal. And it was about an interstate pedophile network that flew children from coast to coast, exactly like Epstein's. And there was also and it was covered up by the Department of Justice and also by the FBI and and for that matter, the Secret Service. And there was a nexus with that particular network between intelligence and also blackmail. One of the there were two primary pimps. In the Franklin Square, one was Lawrence King, and one was Craig Spence. And Craig Spence had a mansion in Washington D.C., and he would have parties that had all the movers and shakers in Washington D.C. Whether they're from uh, Congress or the Cabinet or me- the media, they would they would all go to Craig Spence's parties. And what would happen at those parties is kind of like what you were talking about: people would be plied with alcohol for a number of hours and then something would happen like someone would break out some coke or something sexually inappropriate would happen and the people that didn't want any part of that would immediately leave but if you stuck around and you took part in whatever illegalities that Craig Spence was providing you were compromised because every room in his house was fitted with audio visual blackmail equipment just like every room in Epstein's New York mansion was fitted with audio-visual blackmail equipment. There were, there were also hidden cameras in his Florida home, and there were hidden cameras in his New Mexico ranch. So Jeffrey Epstein was definitely uh, a blackmail artist, and I think Craig Spence killed himself, uh, the blackmail artist of the Franklin Channel, whose, whose role was very much like uh, Jeffrey Epstein's. And I believe that Craig Spence was given a deal uh, because if you're a blackmail artist, you cannot afford a lot of media because that's going to blow your cover. And Jeffrey Epstein was getting a lot of media, and Craig Spence was getting a lot of media. And I think that Spence was given a choice. Either he could kill himself or he could be killed. Now, Uh, Epstein might have been given that same choice, too. I, I don't know.
1: Yeah, it is. Uh, it's interesting. This uh, Craig Spence and the, uh, and the Franklin scandal really takes place uh, during the Reagan uh, and the Bush presidencies. Uh, I knew of, I uh, didn't know, but I knew of Craig Spence. Uh, ironically, I was invited to a number of receptions uh, at his home. Uh, I, I never went. Uh, if you, this is really funny, if you go to uh, the internet, there's this crazy story that uh, some witness claims that they saw Roger Stone on Epstein's Island. We know it was him because he was bare chested, but we could see the Nixon tattoo on his back. We couldn't see his face, however, because he was wearing a bull mask uh, and he was assaulting a young boy. Let me say, I have never had any interaction whatsoever with Jeffrey Epstein never been to his island, never been on his plane, never been to any of his palatial homes. Uh, I was, after you, I think, one of the uh, earliest people in the country to expose Epstein's activities. Uh, but given the nature of the Internet, that story is out there. And by the way, no one ever puts their name on it because they know I'd sue them in a heartbeat. Uh, It's always some anonymous person uh, on the Internet, usually on uh, X, formerly known as Twitter, but sometimes on Facebook, uh, that puts forward this crap. Uh, Look, I understand that I'm clickbait. Uh, Late last week, uh, Ari Melber yet again uh, claiming Roger Stone urged President Donald Trump to invoke the Insurrection Act prior to to the uh, election. And he's absolutely right. A year prior when Antifa and BLM uh, were burning down uh, half of the Pacific Northwest, uh, when there were riots across the country costing millions of dollars of damage to both public and private property in which people were being injured and killed. Yes, I did opine that I thought the president should utilize uh, The Insurrection Act, as George Bush had done to quell the riots surrounding uh, the Rodney King incident. But by the way, that had nothing whatsoever to do with January 6th. But they leave that part out. Uh, Really, I don't get my news from MSNBC for the very same reason uh, that I don't eat out of the toilet. (laughs) <laughs>
2: well, Oscar Wilde said that there's only one thing worse than people talking behind your back, and that's people not talking behind your back. But you concluded that Oscar Wilde was wrong in that case.
1: <laughs> well, I used to say all press is good press, uh, and I recognize at this juncture of my life I'm clickbait and because of my long association uh, and friendship with uh, Donald Trump. Uh, uh, you know, uh, I have... Uh, I'm vilified. I'm polarizing. But that's just the way it is. I guess if that wasn't the case, nobody would be tuning in to the Roger Stone show on W.A.B.C. All right. Unfortunately, we are out of time. I want to thank Nick Bryant, investigative journalist, for joining us today on the Roger Stone show uh, and filling us in on the Jeffrey Epstein scandal. Nick. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Great. And I, I just want to give your listeners a heads up. Go to EpsteinJustice.com, EpsteinJustice.com. Uh,
1: you can sign a petition there. I, I talked about it in the opening of the show. I also urge people to go to com to demand justice for the victims of Jeffrey Epstein. Thank you so much, Nick Bryant.
2: Thank you, Roger.